I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 59 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Jake Williams. Jake is the founder and president of RenditionSec. Jake started his information security career doing classified work with the U.S. government and was awarded the National Security Agency's Exceptional Civilian Award, which is given to fewer than 20 people annually. He's been involved in high-profile public sector cases, including the malware analysis for the 2015 cyber attack on the Ukrainian power grid. Jake is a certified SANS instructor and co-author of 4526, Memory Forensics in Depth, and 4578, Cyber Threat Intelligence. He also teaches a variety of other classes for SANS. Given his accomplishments, it should come as no surprise that Jake lives, sleeps, and breathes InfoSec. He's a regular speaker at industry conferences, including DC3, B-Sides, DEF CON, Black Hat, ShmooCon, Infuse. He's also presented security topics to a number of Fortune 100 executives. Jake is also a two-time victor at the annual DC3 Digital Forensics Challenge. In this episode, we discuss his passion for cybersecurity, changes in the industry over time, threat hunting versus incident response, development of soft skills, AI and machine learning, holding back vulnerability disclosure, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, Jake. Thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Great. How are yourself? I'm doing great. I'm glad we're able to finally connect. You know, you and I have been trying to trying to get this on the calendar now and looking at it almost a year, but, you know, we've been, uh, it, as we were just discussing before we hit record, it's the incident response life. But, I mean, your, your history goes back quite some time. You're almost kind of like an OG of uh, information security. How do you kind of get started? And I guess a kind of follow-up question to that is, how are you still staying passionate about it after all these years? Well, so, I mean, I'll, I'll take the first part. That That's the easy one. It was, it was the government um, and, uh, you know, went to a military, actually. Uh, was was in the Army and uh, doing some uh, tactical intelligence uh, type work and uh, uh, suffered a, a traumatic brain injury, actually. And that kind of shifted me out of uh, doing tactical. And that was... Uh, the rest is the uh, rest is the rest. I mean, it was kind of a uh, where are you going to land, and and dumb luck landed me in uh, kind of in uh, well, kind of in information security. Uh, so it was uh, from there. It's just kind of been you know I recognized it was something I was interested in. I did a lot of computers in high school and stuff, and uh, uh, was you know kind of rotating back around to that. The tactical intelligence had a lot of computers in it too, surprisingly, uh, and uh, just you know again uh, that opportunity was there and. And jumped on it, and uh, when I left the government, uh, military service, and later government service, uh, you know, carried on into private service as well. In, in, I mean, it's now. Have, have you? I guess you've know, seen it change over the years. I mean, before when you even started, we were even really, probably not even throwing around the word cyber as much. But are some of the same problems that you were dealing with when you started still very relevant today? Um, yeah, I think so, but but I I, I think probably in, in a different way than a lot of people uh, than a lot of people imagine. Um, you know, I actually sent out a tweet about this yesterday that the <clears throat> and kind of sparked a little bit of debate, but but about that uh, you know the baseline amount of knowledge that's required to understand uh, and get a get an entry level cybersecurity position today 
um, is is dramatically more than it was, uh, you know, five or ten years ago, right? So, so people will come in today and they're like, oh, I feel like there's so much to learn. I'm never going to learn this all. How did you guys get started? And the answer was not like this, right? I, I think is a good, you know, is a good start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I look at some of these new attack classes and and, and whatnot, and you know, you kind of have to be spun up on a lot more, not kind of anything. You have to be spun up on a lot more today um, than, than you did even just a few years ago, and and so. Um, you know, I, I guess I would say that, yes, we're seeing some of the same problems, but, but I would also mention that, that, you know, kind of at a root cause, I think a lot of it just comes down to the same fundamental misunderstandings about attack classes. The difference is that today, you know, there's a much wider, uh, broader range of attack classes uh, than we had years ago. Well, that too, I mean, it kind of goes along the lines of the TTPs and thinking about, okay, well, let me, let me put it in perspective of the attacker's shoes. I guess a lot of what they're looking for is still somewhat similar. Maybe they might have to change their, you know, the way they get in, but you know, their objectives of getting data tends to be fairly similar, I guess, over, over time. Uh, yeah, give, give or take. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, at the end of the day, right, the lateral movement game really hasn't changed. I mean, I, I think, you know, I would, I think I'm pretty safe in saying it's, it's 90 plus percent SMB, uh, inside the network. It's, it's a lot of PS exec, uh, windows remoting is changing a little bit of that, but, but again, I think that you're seeing a lot of, uh, just a lot of that, not a whole lot else. Um, you know, but that, that's once they're in, um, you know, I, I think a lot of it is, is, is keeping, uh, keeping folks out, um, and, and then also detecting early, right. Um, you know, I actually shared a little bit of a story about early detection, uh, you know, on, on Twitter, I think on uh, Friday actually, uh, and, and just, you know, what a critical, uh, critical piece, you know, that is, you're not going to prevent, I, we're, we're gone long past the point of, of keeping people out. Now it's a matter of, of quickly detecting once they're inside. And, and as you point out, those TTPs really aren't changing. Yeah, and that also kind of spawns a lot of new things that we, we start hearing about, um, you know, particularly around threat hunting versus incident response and forensics. I guess, how would you characterize threat hunting, you know, as part of that ecosystem and, and how should people kind of apply that to their programs? Ooh, that's that's such a good question. Um, you know, threat hunting. Uh, when I think about threat hunting, I, I think about uh, that as the the assumption of the possibility of compromise. Right? We're not assuming that we're compromised. That's taking a defeatist attitude. I don't like the assume compromise thing. I think it's the assumption of the possibility of compromise. Right? We're we're saying that we recognize um, that our controls are fallible um, and that uh, that they may well have already failed, and we're taking steps then. Uh, to uh, basically taking steps then to, uh, to to basically you know check those uh, check those controls right and put checks on those controls and I, I think that's uh, you know I, I think that's important to uh, you know important to consider in that uh, in that context um, as far as threat hunting goes uh, you know I, I think a lot of that is is using some of the same fundamental skills as incident response I think it's a question of is is it deep dive or is it single you know basically are we doing uh, deep dive on on artifacts. Uh, are we trying to look for the uh, look for the unknown? And and I think there's a little bit a little bit of difference there. Now some incident responders that have been dumped into these third party notification scenarios, you know, have been doing this for years, right? And those are the ones where somebody says, "Oh my gosh, your network is breached. Um, good uh, good luck with that. Uh, do we have any IOCs?" And they're like, no, you know. And you're kind of like, well, then where do I start? That is threat hunting, right? Um, just just by a different name. So, so I would say it's 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 an evolution kind of of where incident response is, but or was, but but definitely a new mindset. Is there, you know, kind of a level of maturity that somebody's program should have in place, both on the kind of blue team side and on the forensics, maybe instant response side before they kind of jump into that, that pool of threat hunting, or is it something they can say, Hey, you know, this can be an early stage part of our program. 
That's that's a really good uh, really good question. It's not something I'd put in at least in house, right? So so I, you know we talk about part of a program. I think there's in house versus you know uh, you know external uh, external staff augmentation or, or contract support or whatever. But but I would say that threat hunting is is fairly high on the maturity level. Um, now it's not saying that immature shops can't do threat hunting. That they absolutely can. Um, but uh, you know I, I would recommend it because it's a very high skill. Uh, you know, high, high skill tasks. Because again, you know, what we're doing here is we're not looking necessarily for known IOCs. People talk about that. We're like, I'm hunting for a known IOC. And, and I, I kind of dismiss that as threat hunting. I think of threat hunting a lot more as the, the what didn't we catch, right? If it was a known IOC and it bypassed my perimeter, like wh why in the first place did that occur uh, is really what I'm doing there. It's not no longer really threat hunting to me. So, so I guess, uh, you know, maybe from a maturity level, I think the biggest you know, enabler to that is instrumentation. And if you don't have instrumentation, it, it makes threat hunting much, much more challenging. Definitely. You know, and I guess like it goes about to, you know, somebody else with the kind of traditional block and tackle, you know, security, let's say, you know, either parts of your security program, whether it be technical or, or part of a policy or procedures, are there ones that become particularly effective in kind of building that threat hunting program? You know, if you're going to build a foundation for, having that type of uh, alerting detection, are there particular types of things that should be in place at that point? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, if I'm doing threat hunting, you know, I'll tell you my, my biggest uh, biggest things I'm looking at are, are net flow at the egress, right? So, so the, uh, the north-south uh, net flow. Um, I'm also looking at uh, DNS, right? So if I've got DNS logs, um, I ideally, uh, you know, I, ideally we block any DNS, uh, any UDP port 53 out of the network um, without, uh, unless it's your DNS server, right? Uh, but uh, everything runs through your DNS server, and that makes that the central point of, of DNS logging. And then also, if you have a web proxy in place, I want those proxy logs. And those are really my top three hunting spots, um, because, you know, when it comes down to it, there, there are lots of other log sources, lots of other great things to hunt with, uh, but those three make up the, the vast majority of the detections that we, uh, that we use today. Gotcha. Now, when it comes to the soft skills and the, and the people behind that, is there a particular type of mindset or type of maybe like training that an individual or maybe a program should be looking forward to hiring those types of individuals that, you know, should be kind of fundamentally having? Ooh, that, that's a really good question. You know, we've actually discussed that quite a bit here at uh, Rendition and, and prior to that uh, when I was working with the government. And I think really this, this, you know, is kind of a question when you say soft skills and, and training program. I think a lot of that though really, you know, is, is that whole, that drive for, for curiosity. It's, it's that, it's that I've got a gut feeling and I'm not putting that thing down and my gut feelings check out, right? It can't just, you have a gut feeling and you go, um, it's gotta be like, I've got a gut feeling and consistently my gut feelings are good gut feelings, right? Kind of thing. Uh, I, I guess is, is, is kind of where I'm at there. I, I kind of rotate back to the cuckoo's egg, right? Uh, if you're familiar with that story, Cliff oh, yeah. Stoll finds a 25 cent discrepancy in the counting and, and he's all over that. Right. And, and if you've ever met uh, cliff, cliff is a wild child, man. Uh, and there is no, like there's no question in my mind that uh, when that thing kicked off, you know, he relates in the story. It's like, oh yeah, and my boss said, go track that down. It's very serious. And and having met him, I totally don't believe that. I, I totally think he went in there, you know, just tearing it up. Like, man, we've got to chase this down. We've got to, and that's that mindset that I'm looking for, right? Is is that that person who sees something and and sees that thread and says, yep, it's time to go pull that thread, and has good judgments about which threads to pull, right? Because not all threads deserve to be pulled, and you know, anyway. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's 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 um, it's to coin several uh, past guests, but Cindy, uh, you know, Cindy Murphy from uh, who's been on on 
the podcast before he's done a lot of stuff with Sands as well and uh, Chris Pogue have always said you know it's kind of like a chihuahua on a pork chop you just have to bite onto it and not let go you have to have that kind of just uh, unending passion to, to dig into something and not let go until you figure it out yeah there's there, there's a lot of that you know kind of coming back around you know we've had a discussion in the past about um, you know is is it better to hire an analyst and train them for cyber or is it is it better to hire somebody who's you know great at cyber and train them to be an analyst and uh, you know year after year uh, time after time I'll, I'll tell you that it's it's fine the analyst right the the soft skill that you can't train curiosity you can't train that instinct um, you, you can enhance it with training but you can't train that instinct right some, some people have it uh, it's on a spectrum right I mean some people have it on the high end and, and again you can move that needle um, but uh, you know it's 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 very difficult to uh, to just take somebody who doesn't have it and say, hey, tomorrow you're going to be the, a master of this. Whereas, you know, again, training the hard skill stuff tends to be, a, and don't get me wrong, there's people that have aptitude for that too. Um, but, but I find the hard skill stuff is an easier gap to close than than that analysis soft skill side. Which kind of maybe is a natural lead into some of the things. You know, certainly the the new hotness that has been the last couple of years, particularly in, in RSA and a lot of different other uh, larger conferences around you know, AI and machine learning, how does those types of technologies kind of help or, you know, maybe also be <laughs> maybe false hopes uh, with, with some of the things that we're trying to solve? Yeah, I mean, help, help I think you can throw air quotes around the word help here, right? I mean, um, you know, help is uh, help is, is, is really, really iffy there. Um, you know, the AI and machine learning, uh, for, first off, a lot of the people that are doing AI, quote unquote, AI and machine learning are, are not doing um, real AI, and they're not—they're barely doing machine learning. Um, a, a lot of them are just doing giant database lookups, in, in, in some cases. So, you know, uh, one of my favorite questions to ask is always, "What, what algorithm are you using?" Because if, if you don't know, if your sales engineers aren't prepared to say, you know, we're using a random forest, or we're using k-means, or or whatever, then then again, you know, you probably aren't really doing AI at the back end, right? So, so I think there's that. But but secondarily, um, you know, any machine learning or AI is only as good as the model. Right. So, so if your model's bad or your training data is bad, um, this this can really lead you to make some really really bad assertions about uh, assertions about data. And, and you know that that's one of the biggest. I think one of the biggest things to, to throw out there too is people love to throw. My management, uh, you know, folks that we deal with, uh, board members, they love to ask, well, well, have you tried tackling the the problem with with big data? Like I remember at uh, one company, we actually had uh, they actually own a Cray, a Cray supercomputer, believe it or not, for some medical stuff. Uh, medical research stuff, and they're like, "Well, we've got some downtime on the crave for two weeks here, you know, where it's not scheduled for specific research. Do you want to throw a bunch of your data at it to answer questions?" And I'm like, "No, no, not at all. Like, I mean, I get it. They're like, "No, you can process so much big data, right?" And I'm like, "Totally." But the more data that I throw in, the more meaningless correlations we're going to find, right? Um, if I had unlimited staff, I would take you up on that 100%, right? But but we haven't done the basic. This is what it came, you know, you mentioned earlier: basic blocking and tackling. Um, that's where I need my staff at right now. So, yeah, it's it's it, it's got. I think it has some hope. You know, once you get and you build uh, that knowledge, but it's really going to come down to the humans building that knowledge. The computers can't do it by itself. Um, you know, I was right. <laughs> like, it was funny. I was uh, you would say I had kind of an awkward you know coffee conversation yesterday morning with uh, with the Echo Dot. You know, I'm thinking, God, I'm just making small talk with the Echo Dot about the weather, but it's not what really value is it actually giving to my life. And it's at a point it becomes more of a novelty than a real help. And I, that's where I hope that you know people can apply more of this technology to do things where we say, yeah, we definitely still have a, a problem where there's 
a lot of data to go through and as you said there's a correlation but we need to think about that on the front end as opposed to just saying okay well just throw a machine at it and it'll figure it out by itself yeah i would say uh you know one one of my one of my favorite examples of this actually is uh or favorite examples of, of ai and action in cyber has to be a i don't know if you know john strand or not but he's a oh, yeah. Yep. So he's got a company, a second company spinning up uh, or spinning up, nothing spun up uh, besides Black Hills. Uh, he's got a second one, uh, uh, offensive countermeasures or active countermeasures. Now I can't remember. Um, but uh, he's got a product out that I am like thrilled with uh, called uh, called AI Hunter. Um, and uh, what I really, really like about it is that uh, it, it basically uses clustering, uh, K-means clustering actually, um, to uh, basically do all of the analysis that we were previously doing um, for uh, it's activecountermeasures.com. Now I was trying to remember the, the but AI Hunter is the name of the tool, and, and I'm blown away by it because it, it basically takes the uh, takes a bunch of network traffic and it, it does hunting at, at a level that uh, you know most humans simply can't. It can find correlations in the data you know that most humans uh, most humans can't, um, and even for the stuff that we can, it makes me tremendously faster at doing you know, at, at doing that, right? And, and what I really, one of my favorite things about the product too is is that it's, and by the way, I'm not, you know, like here out endorsing his stuff, but just since we're talking about machine learning, this is an example of machine learning done right, right? People are like, hey, I want to throw my logs in this and I want to throw my, all this other, I want you to find all these correlations. And he's like, nope, that doesn't really cluster well, right? Here's what does cluster, it's, it's NetFlow. Uh, throw your NetFlow and your DNS at me and, and, and I'm absolutely going to go cluster that and we'll go find, find machines, right? Uh, that, that are exhibiting weird traits on the network. And, and again, yeah, this is a combination of, of math uh, applied right um, and, and separately, and I think this is every bit as important, is there's an expert knowledge team behind it that, that's looking and saying, hey, man, when we cluster this, the, the, the clusters aren't meaningful, right? Mathematically, they're not meaningful. And, and so that, that's kind of where we step back. Or sorry, you see, mathematically, they're meaningful, but from a, a usability standpoint in the cybersecurity space, they're not meaningful. And that's that's something I think that a lot of people take away or, or, or missing there. They're, they're like, hey man, you know, correlate all the data and then a human's gonna figure it out and, and nothing could be further from the truth, right? On the back end, you've gotta have expert knowledge people, you know, stepping back and saying, no, consistently, you know, we may get some true positives out of this, but we get a lot more false positives out of this type of correlation stop making this for our customers, it's just going to create false positives. And that, that's something we're not seeing in the industry a lot with these uh, machine learning and, and AI solutions. Yeah, I mean, from from my perspective, I'd love to see some of these things kind of just, yeah, kind of help with some of that grouping and analysis. Um, like, for example, I was doing some stuff over the weekend where I had to convert, you know, memory analysis to put memory analysis compared to disk analysis compared to logs. And it was just like, okay, five buckets of parsing data normalizing it, putting together, then trying to look at it on two different screens was just like, okay, that this is where I could see some help. I was just saying, I, I still know what I need to sift through, but now I got to like pull out IP addresses and URL base 64 encoded strings yep. across four different things. And it's just, yeah, my brain starts breaking after a while. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've actually looked at this, uh, looked at this in the past. We're, we're doing some stuff along those lines in-house and, and we'll see, you know, if, if it ever gets to the point where we're going to, you know, where we're going to push it out. But uh, we, we've got some correlation stuff that we use in-house and which is kind of how you know this whole ai hunter thing started i think for john they, they were doing a lot of this in-house and finally said oh this is this there are lots of other people that could use this kind of thing um but uh but yeah i mean we're, we're kind of in the same boat right and, and we talk a lot about this internally the more screens that i have to look at the more unique data sources that i have to look at you know i i can show you consistently where uh for every new data source that somebody has to correlate manually correlate data across 
every new dashboard they have to go into, every new data source, you know, memory and uh, you know, disk forensics, whatever, where it's not displayed in a single UI, um, you know, you increase, uh, you absolutely increase your error rate. Uh, oh. There's there's no question about it. So. Well, yeah. it, you know, John also posted something pretty interesting uh, last week. It was a blog on on Black Hills about you know kind of the the hybrid Microsoft uh, Azure AD and on-prem oh, yeah. AD, and with you know kind of leads to another thing of like, well, okay, to take out some of these traditional problems, where let's just throw more stuff into the cloud. And I also spent just on a test tenant this weekend setting up all the the security in the cloud on an Office three sixty five like E five tenant. There's a lot of stuff you have to go through, and I think. There's a false sense of security that hey, I can just hand this off to Microsoft and it's, you know, wash my hands of any of the the traditional kind of security setup. But there still seems to be a lot there that again goes back to that fundamentals of you're still going to have to set up um, your you know privileges and and things for um, you know your traditional role based uh, accounts and things like that. That it doesn't get away just by throwing things in the cloud. You still have a lot of these traditional problems. Sure, sure. And, and, and hey, while we're on that, since, you know, I, I largely, I mean, we do red team, but but I would say our biggest, uh, we do red team, we do SOC monitoring, security consulting, but our biggest, biggest revenue uh, by far, and our, our biggest work line by far, and we didn't plan it this way, is incident response. Um, and, uh, you know, the number of O365 breaches that I work uh, and, and breaches involving Azure or Amazon or insert cloud provider here is just phenomenal. Um, and, and the thing that people just aren't ready for, you know, we talk in, in, in SANS, uh, you know, SEC 504, and NIST, NIST talks about this as well, number one phase of incident response is preparation, right? Um, it, it's, it's getting rid of that coulda, woulda, shouldas, uh, you know, ahead of time uh, before you have an issue. And, and people just aren't doing that by and large. So, you know, what we're seeing in, what we're seeing consistently um, in, in our, uh, you know, our analysis is that people, or in our experiences, is that people move to the cloud and they assume that, uh, you know, they say, oh, we had on-prem exchange, so I dumped on-prem exchange server, and now I put my stuff in O365, right? And, and so then they end up with a breach, and they say, let's go investigate this, and they have no logs, right? Because default logging is, is pathetic in O365. <laughs> well, I don't say it's turned off. Well, There's like auditing is like certain things, like you, you have to go proactively turn it on. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, totally, totally. So that, and that's kind of where I'm going, right? There, there's a very, very baseline, and I know Microsoft upped it a little bit, but it's still it's still less than you get on a traditional exchange server by, by far. Yeah. Um, and, and so that's something that a lot of people simply don't realize, right? They're, they're kind of kicking over thinking this is a, a drop, you know, a lift and lift and shift. And, and I, I have to tell you that I, I kind of blame Microsoft a little bit for this, right? And I'm not trying to say that, you know, these people don't, don't hold their own responsibility. They, they definitely do, but Microsoft is advertising as a lift and shift. Oh yeah. Right? And saying, yeah, by all means just come on and lift and shift. And, and, and I wish somewhere in there that they would say, so. I mean, for instance, if, if somebody said, hey, come trade in your car, I'll give you one with, you know, 20% better gas mileage and, and whatever, and, and it's going to be cheaper to own and total cost of ownership goes down. And, and then forgot to tell you that, oh, by the way, this new car doesn't have airbags or any lock brakes or, or a collapsible steering column and it, things are rolling death trap, um, you probably wouldn't get into the car. And in fact, the FTC, uh, you know, would be involved in this so quick it would make your head spin. I, it, it kind of blows my mind a little bit that, uh, you know, None of that's happening, to be honest, right? Because, because again, this this is something that a lot of they're just making in, making bad decisions on based on lack of information, and and it's it's I, I think at this point it's 2018, right? I think I think the logging required to investigate a compromise, investigate common uh, types of compromises, why that isn't on by default is uh, I don't know, man. I, it seems like it, it seems a little bit uh, a little bit off to me. Oh yeah, and, and there's that even. It's almost too easy. What I've seen with a lot of the folks in the Office 365 breaches, it could be, 
um, somebody in more of an administrative role with inside the organization that's magically granted uh, global admin permis- permissions. I would never do that in a non-prem exchange environment. I wouldn't say, "Hey, I'm going to make you know the office administrator uh, a global ad- you know an admin with inside the entire organization." But it's one click of a button, and magically they are. And by default, multi-factor authentication is not enabled yet. You know, I think they're going to finally start enforcing that. But there's just some of those things that uh, it's, it kind of has me scratching my head of why they don't have this stuff set up to be um, on for security or things like off, like. You know, mail forwarding is off. You know, why, why is that on by default? So there's a lot of things I think it's unfortunate that people are buying into these products thinking, yeah, okay, this is great. It's safer. But as you said, there's there's a lot of the kind of core fundamental uh, safety features that are not there. Yeah, definitely. And, and hey, while, while we're on multi-factor author, you know, while that's, that's come up, um, something that's really interesting to me, and, and I'm now, now I want to start by saying I totally think multi-factor is, is the way to go. I, I think it's bad if you don't have it. Um, and I'm going to check all those boxes and be done there. I'll also mention and say that you know we're a Duo partner because uh, Duo probably does multi-factor better than anybody else in the industry. We'll see how that continues once Cisco, Cisco yeah. you know, <laughs> finishes the acquisition. I mean, look, anytime, and this this is not a knock on Cisco or IBM or any, but but I'll tell you, man, those, those two in particular, um, I I am just dreadfully worried when they acquire something um, that the product is going to take take dramatic turns away from its away from its roots, and and so that's. Likewise, cost. Cost is my other big thing that I worry sure. about. Is you know one of the things that made Duo great is that it was easily affordable. And anyway, getting off that for a second, you know, as we try to get people enrolled in, in Duo, and there's no question that, that I, I I think we were done with the debate about does multi-factor authentication help prevent some types of security compromises? No question. Credential harvesting, no question. Right. Um, but but what I'm really interested in, and I, I've really tried to find this data and have been unable to because I, I just don't think it exists, um, is that there's no like randomized control test, right? Um, that says, hey, here's the total cost of ownership of of implementing, or even just forget randomized control test, just even like a simple, you know, hey, we, we've we've studied the data. Here is the actual cost of implementing two-factor authentication. Right, because the product there are absolutely productivity losses, and anybody who argues otherwise is, I mean, just they're they're smoking something, um, because there's absolute productivity losses with everybody. People lose tokens. Um, there are you're you're adding another authentication piece into the mix that does can and does have failures. There's you know, and nobody's studied, to my knowledge, and actually come up with good numbers to go show businesses and say, look, you know, when somebody says what's my productivity loss going to be? I can't show them a number. I can't say, well, so-and-so looked at this and here was the help desk cost. Here was the, you know, here are all the costs associated with this. And to my knowledge, nobody's actually got that data. Yeah, I would agree. It's funny. Uh, when I, uh, same thing, my, my old firm, we were a duo partner and big fan of their, them and their product and what they put out because of their ease of implementation. I mean, I go back to the old school RSA tokens that, you know, the story I would say the difference between the newer soft tokens and phone token features are, you know, in, in the old days, you would get the hard hard tokens, you would set it up and within, you know, about two to three months, pretty much uh, the IT and business units would make it, uh, you know, would abandon two-factor because it was, it was too user clunky. <laughs> you know, you couldn't get it, you couldn't get people to really kind of use it. It's definitely gotten better, but it, I think that goes with a lot of, uh, a lot of type of security products, anything that's going to Effect or impact the user experience in any way, you have to kind of set up that time to walk them through. And so it's funny with Duo, what we used to do is just, I would go sit in a room and set up with a whole bunch of people and say, okay, well, we'll do a, a Duo training day. 
and kind of prepare for the worst and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Generally, it worked. You know, people would come yep. in and we would use a lot of things that were maybe in, in legal and a lot of let's let's say let's less tech friendly uh, folks with inside that particular business or community, and they would come in and say, "Okay, well, what's this duo thing I got to set up?" I was like, "Here's what we're gonna do," and they go, "Okay, that's it." I thought that was gonna be much harder, and in their mind, it was already built up to be worse. And then we would talk them off the ledge. But there right. needs to be more of that kind of people part of implementing a lot of these security solutions. Well, I think, but I think the problem goes beyond that, right? And this this is where you know people have legitimate concerns, and 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 I think when we can't show them the data, and this isn't, by the way, this isn't unique to to multi-factor, right? As, as I started looking at this, um, you know, I, I I'll tell you in the last couple of weeks, as I'm as I'm studying a couple of these problems, and and you know, people asking me for you know, for data that I'm thinking, well, certainly we have this data um, and, and we don't. I, I'm starting to look at some of the things that we're prescribing to be, uh, you know, on faith, right? It's, it's more a religion than a, you know, than, than science. Um, and, and don't get me wrong, I have great faith that, uh, you know, I have great faith that the two-factor works and I have great faith that the the overall costs, uh, you know, productivity costs are lower than, you know, uh, basically lower than, uh, than, than not using it. Um, you know, I believe that, but I also believe in the Easter Bunny. Uh, 1.2, and I had great anecdotal evidence that that worked as well, um, because every Easter morning eggs appeared, and and people told me they were the Easter Bunny, and there was cool stuff there, and you know, and, and so um, not not to be a uh, you know not to be funny about this or anything, but but th- there's there's a reality to this that the, the you know that again there's a we lack the data to be able to show. I, I remember we were at a customer site, gosh, it was a month or two ago, um, and, and and over that week, three different people were late to meetings or, or in one case missed a meeting um, because they didn't have like basically they rolled out and either had uh, one of them had a phone upgrade and their two factor hadn't moved across. Uh, one of them forgot a, uh, a hard token at home um, and had to turn around and go get it. And I can't remember the third one. Oh, it was uh, in, in another office. Like they left the hard token in their office and then in the meeting couldn't then log into something else that they needed to get to. And, and so you're stepping back going, I mean, and granted, they weren't supposed to be presenting there, but it came up and it was a, every one of these is a loss of productivity. And, and so that doesn't even count like the help desk stuff, you know, like when you get a new phone and the whole, that's the stuff like getting people enrolled, I think is pretty easy. I, I can put a dollar cost on that. Sure. that. That's an easy thing for me. But, and again, I, I don't want to leave this as a two factor problem. I think this is much, much bigger across a lot more of InfoSec. Um, than just a two-factor problem, and it's it's this this uh, unrelenting faith that because this it makes it harder for attackers, therefore it must be worth doing. Well, maybe not in some cases, right? And I guess that's one of those things that when and by the way, I, I can't come up with a case where I wouldn't recommend two-factor, uh, except maybe like an emergency room or an ICU or whatever. Uh, but those are physically controlled environments. Um, but but I mean, like short short of those, you know, like life safety type applications. Um, you know, I, I'm kind of stepping back. I, I think it's worth it, but but I also have to step back and say I, I don't know that, right? I, I can't show anybody data. And it's kind of an interesting problem in InfoSec that, that when we don't capture this data, um, and I'm sla- you know I'm kicking myself for not capturing some of this when I've been in position to do it. Sure. Um, but uh, when we don't have this data, really we're advocating on on something that's not much better than religious faith. Yeah, I can't think of how many environments I've, I've probably been in and consulted in where there's, you know, a, a half dozen to a dozen half implemented solutions that didn't totally extrapolate <clears throat> uh, the total cost of ownership. You know, it's like saying, oh, yeah. oh it's, you know, 
we did a proof of concept. It worked great. And it's like, yeah, that wasn't a realistic environment. You know, you're working with the vendor and their best team to sell it to you. Sure. It's going to, everything's going to work perfectly. And then after the, uh, you know, contract sign and starting to roll it out, there's that, you know, three to 12 months support. That's not always there. Yeah. Well, how about a SIM, man? I mean, you know, if we want to talk about failed deployments, yeah. it, it, SIM has to be at the top of the list for me. Um, I can't think of, I mean, I shouldn't say I can't think of, you know, the Fortune 500 world, SEM deployments tend to go pretty well. And that that largely, I, there's a strong correlation there. I can't put causation on it, but strong correlation there with with tons of vendor support over the first, let's say, 24-month period to get that thing tuned and, and installed and the whole. But man, when, when you buy a SEM for, you know, God knows what, between hardware and software, and let's say it's, it's a quarter million dollar investment, and you put 160 hours of ProServe behind it, um, that that's nuts, right? And, and I'll tell you that nine out of ten of those fail, in, in our experience at least. And when I say fail, meaning that they're not getting the value out of it that was described to the board, management, whoever, um, when they signed off on on the money, sure. on the spend. Yeah. It, which also goes down to that that kind of other total cost of ownership is is making sure you have the right kind of people in place to run these, you know, whether it be an appliance, whether it be part of a program. And there tends to still be this debate about this talent gap. Uh, you know whether there's enough people or enough trained people. What's kind of your take on looking at to say, hey, what do we have to fill and where and how big are these numbers in reality? Let's say. So I actually had a discussion about this. Funny, this this actually came up uh, within the last week on uh, you know on, on social media as well. And um, I, there's a lot of people that claim that there's not a talent gap. Uh, some people claim that there's just a you know, no, no remote work gap and, and you name it, like pe- people insert lots of stuff there. I, I think there is a talent gap. Um, but, but I think that one of the things that, that we need to get better at is that there's not enough entry level infosec positions, right? And, and we kind of touched on this initially, you know, what is entry level has, has changed a little bit, you know, over the last, uh, you know, over the last, well, not a little bit, it's changed a lot over the last five years. Um, so, so I think that uh, a lot of this is coming down to a uh, you know, really a, an entry level gap, you're getting a lot of these. And I think one of the big causes of this is you're getting a lot of, of there's a lot more people interested in cybersecurity, a lot more organizations interested in cybersecurity. W- one of the places or one of the reasons for that is you're getting a lot of the uh, small, uh, smaller shops, right, that are suddenly saying, hey, we need cybersecurity now. Um, and, uh, you know, for those people, they, they can't take an entry level, right? Um, whatever entry level means that they can't take one of those people. They need somebody who's got, um, you know, a, a full background and not, not just a, uh, you know, not just a, Hey, I, I read the CISSB study guide. I'm ready to secure your environment, right? They, they can't have one of those. Granted, if you've got an infosec shop of 30 people, you can take on four or five of those people and train them up if they've got that aptitude. But, but that's not the case for, you know, all these organizations that are now getting religion or in some cases being regulatory or getting regulatory requirements to have infosec people on staff, right? To have a CISO, to have a, you know, a, a security manager, a GDPR of course brings that in. So I think a lot of that plays together. Sure. And so, you know, kind of leads me to think about a little bit how you've, you know, been working now with SANS for quite some time. You know, what are some of the, I guess, where's some of the backgrounds that you're seeing of some of these people come in? Are, are you seeing that shift from, you know, there was, you know, at least when I started, it was a lot of law enforcement, military, and IT. Uh, we certainly see, see it become a little bit more diversified now, at least in my experience. How are you seeing it play out with some of the SANS training that you're doing? Ooh, um, I'm going to tiptoe around this so that I don't get, uh, don't get beat up by SANS later. But um, 
let, let me go ahead and say that uh, that the the baseline student um, is probably less skilled. The baseline student that I see, my average student that I see today, is probably less skilled than they were, and less experienced in cybersecurity than they were, um, let's say, even just just two or three years ago. Um, and that goes for conferences too, right? So, so the average conference attendee, when I go out to a DerbyCon or a DEFCON or whatever, um, is, is probably less experienced as well. And that's that's great because those are, you know, that that's not a knock. This is actually a good thing. Uh, we need those people coming into the industry, obviously, to replace uh, you know the folks that are are starting to shift away because of burnout or, or career change or you name it, right? Eventual retirements, um, and then separately too, um, you know, it, it creates a challenge because uh, of course, you know, you, you've got uh, again overall uh, less experience, you know, a lower experience level, right? So if you step back and you look at the, you know, you look at the uh, the average. Um, the, the you know the uh, the mean um, I would say that, that you're probably looking less experienced uh, you know and, and or excuse me not the mean the median uh, I guess even the mean probably too is now that I'm thinking about it so um, but but yeah I think it plays out a little bit differently it is a little bit uh, obviously the less experience you bring in the harder it is to train the same concept uh, so so yeah I mean definitely there's there's some shift uh, some shift happening there but I, I don't look at it as a negative. Um, I, I might even look at it as a positive. It tells me that there are people coming into the field uh, or, or getting serious about the field at a rate that we didn't see years ago. Well, I think part of it too, what I'm noticing is it's there is that definite, um, you know, no matter what, when I look at it at the baseline of me bringing in an analyst, if it's somebody out of college, I then have to train them on maybe business skills or social skills, how to write an email, where it's nice where some folks that might have come uh, into cyber as a second or third um career, at least they have some fundamental business skills in other areas where I'm like, okay, well, that's a pleasant surprise that, yeah, they might be a little bit greener in some of the cyber skills, but God, they, I don't have to have that, that cognitive load of having to train them on, on some of the stupid crap is not there, which is great. They, they just jump right in. Yeah. You know, th there's, there's definitely a huge, uh, huge benefit to that. Right. So, so, you know, like you talk to the OGs, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the, uh, the folks, you know, that are the the kind of the original InfoSec people, right? And most of them have some other career outside of, you know, outside of InfoSec, right? Um, and and I will say that, that some of that plays into knowing uh, and being able to say, hey, you know, this is this is just life. This is just you know working in uncertainty, right? In, in areas of uncertainty, that's that's part of that's part of life, right? It's definitely part of InfoSec. Um, and and I think people that have that experience already. Uh, you know, uh, are probably a little bit more uh, handled that a little bit better than, than those that don't. Right. Uh, so so I, I think there's I think all that kind of kind of plays together. Yeah. Uh, good. The one kind of last thing I wanted to kind of touch on was certainly there was a, a lot of things that you've probably even seen in, in your interesting, interestingly enough now in your, your incident response career, but seeing some of the, you know, maybe with the shadow brokers tools, some of those things being out uh -huh. on the internet, you know, we're seeing things like eternal blue and other types of attack tools that, you know, might've come out from different organizations, but stepping back and looking at that, there was some good points I thought you made on social media by saying, you know, it's not this, you know, we, we, uh, it's easy to fall into this us versus them. Like, oh, the Russians are attacking us. This the Chinese are attacking us. And then to counter and not, you know, think about, well, okay, well, maybe a lot of other countries are attacking other countries as opposed to it being a, a more of a holistic thing than as opposed to, you know, there's just one bad actor out there on the planet. But I mean, you've kind of seen all angles of this. So I guess kind of what's your perspective now on these more of these, you know, kind of I'd say nation state cyber warfare capabilities of what we're going to experience over the next five to 10 years uh, based on what we're seeing now. 
So, so I'm not bold enough to make any five to 10 year predictions. Fair right? enough, um, fair I, enough. I, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time making a five to 10 month prediction. Fair, fair uh, to be honest. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, on, on that end, um, I, there is no question, just no question that, uh, you know, that, that we are seeing, uh, you know, in front of us here, the, the evolution of this, the cyber warfare uh, capability, whatever that means, right? Um, and I don't think anybody knows what it means. And I think anybody who claims they're sure they know what it means, uh, they're either delusional or lying, right? Um, and so, you know, there, there's, I, I think that that's a big, uh, that, that, that's a big, interesting, uh, interesting space there. Um, I, we are definitely seeing an evolution of it. And, and I think one of the things that we need to come to, come to grips with uh, quickly is, you know, how are we going to treat this from a political and from a criminal justice standpoint? Because, you know, here we are right now charging, uh, you know, foreign hackers um, for the kinds of things that we also do, that we also engage in directly, um, you know, as, as the United States, right? Um, and, and it's easy to say, well, we don't, you know, split hairs and say, well, politically, we wouldn't do X, Y, or Z, right? And, and, and obviously, I won't talk about whether or not that's true, but let's, let's take for granted that it is, right? We'll just assume on, on faith that it is. Um, you know, we're splitting hairs in a lot of classified territory that, you know, uh, I, I don't know that, that others are, are going to split hairs. So, so all the stuff that we're doing today, I think, is going to have legally, right, is going to have ramifications for, for the folks in the U.S. that are doing this. Um, separately, again, you know, as, as cyber warfare, uh, uh, cyber warfare uh, capabilities increase, and they certainly are uh, from a, uh, they certainly are, uh, and, and honestly, too, I don't think it's the shadow brokers that's going to push that as much as it is the, the Vault 7 links. Uh, the Vault 7 leaks, as, as I'm sure where those are more, you know, uh, or at least declared to come from the CIA side, um, those uh, those leaks, rather than being tool-centric, are very development-centric and program-centric. And so what attackers, instead of seeing the end result, right, the, the, what I described this to people as, you know, the shadow brokers it was, was a lot like, you know, handing somebody a can of Coke, right? Um, yes, you, you got to drink the Coca-Cola, it was immediately useful, it satisfied your thirst and and whatever, but the CIA leaks, the Vault 7 leaks, are, are, are like explaining how to build a manufacturing plant to, to make Coke and the secret formula for Coke and, and a bunch of other stuff. And, and I think that is far more damaging. Uh, there, I, I can't imagine there's a nation on the planet uh, that isn't looking at this and, and taking lessons learned away from uh, the Vault 7 leaks, as well as in, integrating capabilities from the, you know, from, from the shadow broker stuff. So, so I, I think that we are, or not I think, we're already seeing and have been seeing uh, these capabilities being used by, by, by foreign attackers. Which also kind of leads into some, you know, I've done zero government work, uh, but, you know, being on the commercial side, you know, when we see these things, I guess, come out on the market that were, you know, either potential zero days or known exploits that were not disclosed, it can sometimes ruffle some feathers and particularly even seeing it on just the commercial side with the Office 365 logging capabilities. And when there's these things that are out there that people have tools or capabilities or known exploits, um, it seems, you know, at times it can seem to make the playing field uneven, but there's also the, the argument where you say, well, look, we, we might need it. What's, what's your kind of take on, on, I guess, when to disclose responsible disclosure of some of these types of things and, you know, should people be able to kind of, maybe withhold? Well, you have to be able to, right? This isn't even a question of, of, of should we be able to look, if we're going to do, um, if we're committed to doing, uh, you know, uh, foreign intelligence work, um, and, and I think we are, I don't think that's going away. Um, we being the U S right. And, and extrapolate this to any nation, 
um, when you discover a vulnerability, um, I, I think you do need to actually go in and, and, and hold on to some of those vulnerabilities. Some of those are absolutely necessary. So um, it, it's, it's, look, in an idealistic world, it's very easy to say, no, uh, get rid of everything, release everything. But, but that's, just, that's just not reality. Um, you know, the, the, honestly, we, we could do hours and hours and hours on the vulnerability equities process. And, but, but the reality of it is it, is it is absolutely required that we hold on to some of these. Um, and, and the amount of foreign intelligence that I'm, I'm sure is enabled by this is, is, is just huge. Uh, separately, even if we, you know, uh, pinky swear uh, to everybody that we're going to release everything, um, let's be realistic. I don't think we trust all the other players on the planet to do the same thing. So, so acting in, in quote unquote good faith or best faith or whatever puts us at a strategic disadvantage. Well, great. Jake, thank you so much for all the time today. Where can people find you on the internet? Oh, uh, so uh, Rendition InfoSec, uh, that's uh, www.rsecrsec.us. Uh, I'm also uh, online on Twitter, at uh, MalwareJake and at uh, RenditionSec. So. Yes, I highly recommend following your Twitter feed. It's It adds a little bit of humor to what can sometimes be the, the sterile world of cybersecurity. So I, I do appreciate those tweets. I try. Yeah. So. Well, thanks so much. I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes. And uh, again, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today, Jake. Glad we finally connected. Yeah, sure enough. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.